Good morning, everybody. It's Jeff Goldberg for the Sales Pro Network. It is Friday, January 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern. As many of you know, I'm a sales coach and trainer. I work with individuals and organizations internationally to help them achieve measurable and sustainable sales increases. And I founded the Sales Pro Network, it's almost three years ago now, to elevate the profession of sales, to give sales people a place to hang out, network, learn, and earn. And as you probably know, every Friday at 10 a.m., we either do a live training or a live interview with somebody who can add value to the profession of sales. And once again, my friend, today is no exception. Uh, before I introduce today's guest, we, who we've had here before, if you're watching us live, please say hello in the comments. If you're watching us live on Facebook and have not connected your account to StreamYard, it's just gonna say Facebook user, so please be sure to put your name in there. If you're watching us on the replay, please put replay in the comments. And finally, if you have any questions for our guest today, please put those in the comments too, and I'll make sure we get them to them. And now, it's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Todd Capone, who pointed out to me this morning that we know each other for 20 years already. And I've said this, I think, to Todd's face, because I know I've said it to a bunch of other people. And if I haven't said it to Todd, I hope I'm not insulting you. But I had no idea 20 years ago how damn smart he is. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to Todd Capone. He's the author of my favorite sales book, The Transparency Sale, and now The Transparent Sales Leader. Good morning, Todd. Dude, it is so good to see you. And uh, for everybody who follows Jeff, I, I just want to say like 20 years, um, there's a reason why we've kept in touch. And I'm not saying this to blow smoke. Like you're one of the good ones, brother. Like you're one of the ones that I just, I always feel like you have my back. And when I think about the way that you interact with the people who follow you, the people that you coach, the companies that you kind of <clears throat> serve as like an interim uh, CSO, you always have them in mind. Like it's always about them. And I just, I love that about you. So I'm honored to be here once again. Thanks brother. Well, look, I think, you know, I loved your first book. Uh, it continues to be the very first book I recommend to people. And I ask all the time, you know, uh, what's, what's your favorite sales book? Best book of the last 20 years is the, the Transparency Sale. Why did you write The Transparent Sales Leader? You know, it's funny. Um, I actually was thinking about writing The Transparent Sales Leader first. Um, but then when I did the outline, like I hadn't done the research, the behavioral science research to really optimize it. Just funny story between all of us that like, if you ever want to write a book, all of you, uh, and I know Jeff, you have, but the, the first thing you do is you make an outline and you kind of create a proposal for yourself. Back like seven, eight years ago, I made a proposal for this book. And when I got done reading the proposal, I was like, I'm bored. Like, I don't even want to read it. Um, and so what I did is, you know, I've really optimized it with all the behavioral science and all the experiences that I've had. I just feel like, especially right now, the importance of optimized revenue leadership correlates directly with how hard it is to sell in the economy, right? Like when selling's easy, what do you have to do as a leader, right? You've got to recruit well, and you got to make sure you're clearing the path so everybody can be as efficient and effective as possible. When the economy gets crappy, you got to optimize everything. Their focus, the whole team, the tools, the resources, the fundamentals. Make sure you're proactive instead of reactive with the way that you're thinking about metrics. You got to create an environment where they're still motivated and they're not depressed, right? You got to do all of that stuff. So not only did I write the book and optimized it with all the behavioral science, but I really poked my publisher like, we got to get it out now. And so that's, that's really where all of this started. Got it. I, I, I don't know if you remember, but uh, right after I read the, the transparency sale, I wrote to Todd, I wrote to you and I said, hey, Todd, 
what about a transparent sales manager, anything like that? And he said, are you standing outside my window watching me? Because I've, I've been waiting for this book. I, what is it, two years now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it, it really comes from like, I don't know about for everybody who's listening or watching, but like for me, you're a sales rep, right? Or you're in a sales organization and you're just surrounded by structure and process and framework and support. Then you get promoted in the leadership. And you're like, yeah, I get to be a leader. Like, how cool is that? But then you have no structure, no process, no framework. And like that, that's really the core of this is why can't revenue leaders have a structure to fall back on that they can plan and strategize against, use to communicate. And when the bullets start flying, they've got that to fall back on. And, and, and that's where this started that 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I first got promoted, I didn't have one. And I was way too much of a nerd to be able to deal with that. So I created a structure and a framework. And that's that's really kind of the, the basis for the book is let's give you all a structure. So if all you do is memorize it, you're 98% ahead of the rest of the revenue leadership world that's got nothing. So you sound smart and I could use all the help I could get. Yeah, I, I, I know that like me, you've worked at major corporations all over the world, uh, giving them advice and training and coaching and things like that. And uh, one of the things I, I noticed, even at lar large, seemingly well-run and profitable organizations, to me, the sales manager, the sales leader, whoever sales directly reports to is the linchpin of the organization. Everybody else is important, but without a great sales leader, most salespeople fail. And I find that most sales managers are salespeople that got promoted. So one, you lost your best salesperson, but the big thing is they don't train them how to manage and sales management and sales sales are two very different things. So you talk all about transparency. Are transparency and honesty, are those the same thing? And if that's true, can a sales leader be too transparent or too honest? Oh, sure. I mean, there, there's really, I mean, the transparency and honesty are very similar. Um, and there, there's, by the way, for anybody, um, one thing that I don't think Jeff mentioned is like when cool people are doing cool things on the weekends, you might find me reading a late 1800s or early 1900s book or magazine on sales or sales leadership. Like that's my nerdery. My wife makes fun of me constantly. Um, but there, there's my, my favorite sales quote of all time. It comes from a guy named Arthur Dunn in 1919. And he says, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, right? It's like that quote just is like tears rolling down my cheek. And so that that's like, we've always known that honesty and transparency is the core of what we should be doing. As a matter of fact, Glenn Buck, who was a general manager at uh, Ford back in 1921 said, uh, essentially, um, if honesty hadn't been invented, we would have had to invent it as an efficiency measure. The, the point being that, transparency and honesty they go hand in hand in that it's a cards face up approach because we run behind people who are forthright and we as human beings we're prediction machines and if we can't predict and we we can't see where we're headed we go into a survival mode i i don't quite argue that transparency and authenticity are different right that authenticity is bringing your true self and your beliefs and your values to the the table and in organizations where there's a culture, a leader can sometimes get in trouble by being too authentic, by bringing their truths and values and morals to represent the team, whereas maybe that actually runs in conflict to the organization. 
from a transparency and honesty perspective, I, I often use the wisdom of a supermodel here because like, why wouldn't we? Um, <laughs> like Tyra Banks, you know, Tyra Banks coined the term flossum. And flossum means to embrace your flaws, but know that you are awesome. And where transparency and honesty can get you in trouble is if you suck, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's like, hey, everybody, this is why I suck. Like, you know, take it easy. Flossum is what drives people to run behind great leaders, people that are honest with themselves and with others as to, hey, here's what I'm great at. Here's where I could use your help and where I'm looking to fill in the gaps and where I'm trying to make myself better. We just tend to run behind those people much more often. Yeah, I, I've done a ton of personal development work over you know the last four decades. And one of the things I learned very early on is that, you know, if you want to be successful and happy that you got to tell the truth and keep your commitments. And I, I became a truth teller. I'm, I'm committed to integrity hundred percent, but yeah. that doesn't mean I walk up to people on the street and go, you're fat, you're ugly. <laughs> uh, you know, so there's a difference between being honest and saying what doesn't need to be said. Uh, but right. good morning, Pete Ekstrom. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, good morning, A.B. A. Sudek. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Don Levine and uh, Facebook user. Oh, Valerie Heffron. Hey, good to see you. Glad to have you here. Um, you suggest, and I found this fascinating, Many of the traditional leadership practices are wrong. Before we get to what's wrong, and I want to hear about that, how do you define a sales leader? Are we talking about a sales manager only? Is that a sales VP or a direct? What is a sales leader? Yeah, I, I actually, when I wrote the book, it was funny because my, my publisher, when he read it, he was like, this is for anybody who leads. And um, as I kind of got deeper into it, I was really trying to focus on revenue leadership. So anybody who is responsible for individuals um, or, well, it's actually it's for leaders of leaders too, that are responsible for when their lips move and words are coming out of their mouth, that is the success or failure of the organization. So it's your customer facing teams, the ones that go out and either are selling, they're you know, selling appointments or doing the business development or um, sales development. It could be client success, it could be your upsell, cross-sell renewal team. But the way that I look at this and the, really the lens by which I tried to drive the, or write the book was for anybody in revenue leadership. So those who are leading teams or leading individuals who are leading teams. Got it. So what's your criteria? What makes someone a great sales leader? What criteria should we use to judge them? Well, I, another story. Um, when, when I first got promoted to uh, sales leadership, it was 2008. Um, I had uh, I'd been working with you with that guy from like 2003 to 2006. I popped out. I, I got into sales operations, which is like processes and structures and training. It's kind of enablement before enablement to a certain extent, always knowing that I wanted to get into leadership. Like and I told my CEO when I first joined that company, like my goal is to learn from your VP of sales and eventually run a revenue organization, not here, but like somewhere, maybe here, but hopefully this VP of sales stays forever. Two years later, I get the call in the middle of the night because I was in Germany doing some training that they had let go of that VP of sales and they said, we think you're ready. Oh, sweet. Like, that's awesome. There, there was two issues. Number one, I was actually younger than everybody in the revenue organization. Like, like the whole revenue, like I looked like I was at least like the youngest on the team that I would be leading was three years older than me. That was number one. And then number two is my CEO um, told me, he's like, you got to stop being their buddy. You're too nice, right? Like 
bring it. And I was like, well, then I'm going to suck at this. And in my first engagement with the team, here's what I said. I don't know if the CEO appreciated it. He does now. I told them that, listen, um, I'm no better than you. I'm no more important than you. In my eyes, we are peers. We just have different responsibilities. All right. Like my responsibility is to support you and to give you structure and process and clear the field of all the crap that stands in your way and try to make you your best self and help you to get to the goals that you want to achieve because none of you are old enough to say that this is going to be your last job, right? And like, that's what I, I want to make you better at what you do, make your lives better and just like clear the path so that you go to bed at night so excited the next morning to get up and run through a brick wall for yourself, for your family, but for me, for our company, and for your customers. And I, man, it served me well, dude. Like, and that that's kind of the way that I look at it is great leaders aren't there for themselves. They're there to, you know, be a support, but that core line, I'm no more important than you. I think we're peers. We just have different responsibilities. That that's a mantra that I took with me through all of leadership. Brilliant, because uh, I'm embarrassed to even tell you this, but uh, I, I can vividly see, remember walking into a new management position one day, and I actually, I'm cringing before I even say it. I started out with, "There's a new sheriff in town." <laughs> took took me a right. while my, to win them over after that. My one. Jeff Goldberg reign of terror begins now. <laughs> yeah. So um. So. As a sales representative, how do they know if their leader is good at their job? I, like if I'm interviewing for a job and I'm speaking to the sales leader, how do I, how do I, I mean, you don't want to go to work for a bad manager and there's plenty of them out there. How do we know that? Yeah. I mean, it's, they say that it, there, there's the old axiom that people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And that's mostly correct. Um, they actually, when you look at Gallup studies, they attribute 70% of your engagement or your intrinsic inspiration is a direct correlation with the individual that you will be reporting to, right? So that's 70%. The other 30% is other stuff. And so, you know, I, I actually kind of flip it that what I'm trying to do in the book is to get like you would, uh, I think you were going to ask me later about some of the questions that I ask. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. When, yeah. Well, like when I was a CRO or when I was a leader, when I would encourage my leaders to use because that culture alignment is so important. I mean, there's certain things that you can ask that tell you whether or not this person comes from a place where they can have passion for the role and have passion for their profession and align to the way the culture and the structures and the processes work so that we can get the best out of each other. And I think that's what you're looking for as a rep when you're in an interview is before you go into the interview, just think about the environment that you've been in where you felt like you were at your best every day. What was that environment like? But then more specifically, what was that individual you reported to like? Like, What were the things they did and didn't do? And then go to the interview with that lens, right? And ask questions around the way that they think and process and the way the structures are and what that day-to-day -day is going to look like. Because if that doesn't feel like that great situation or at least close, it might not be the right fit. And are they coming across as an arrogant prick who says, I'm the new sheriff, or more like <laughs> you, who said, I'm no better than you guys? I think well, that yeah, I mean, but part of it is transparency, right? Like, you're right. Like, the, the arrogant prick comment, it's like, 
if this person's presenting themselves as a perfect five-star product, right? Like I am awesome. And did I mention how awesome I is? And like, here's a, a list of all of my great accomplishments. Aren't you impressed? Like that's disgusting, right? Like you can feel it and we can feel it. Like it's the way we interact with everybody that confidence is contagious. Cockiness is such a turnoff and you want somebody who's confident, but transparent and self actuated to understand what they're great at and what they're not. Yeah, I I know why I said those words. I wish I could take them back now, but the <laughs> VP of sales who hi had hired me said, you know, I need you, I need somebody firm because the, they, they didn't listen to the last guy at all. So I'm like, you guys are gonna listen to me. Oh boy. <laughs> right, yeah, you can't force it, right? Like, and that's the thing. And that's the way that I felt. Like there were, my team at that time was never gonna look at me as like, oh gosh, now I need to be afraid of Todd. I've gone down drinking with him every day. Now I'm angry. Like that's never going to work. Like no matter what words come out of my mouth, they know who I am. And so I took that. And then when I did come in new to my next company to be their SVP of global sales, that was the first sentence out of my mouth with them. And they didn't know me and they knew that I had, had a ton of success. So there was a respect level, but to be able to walk in and just say, listen, guys, we're we're all in this together, right? Arm in arm, we're peers, let's make each other great. Yep, absolutely. So uh, in my 48 years of sales now, 14 of those years were spent as a sales manager, sales director, branch manager, uh, co-national sales director. So I, and I now, I'm up until recently managed three different sales teams at the same time on an outsourced basis. So I've got a lot of experience, but just because you're experienced doesn't mean all your experience was good experience and, uh, at the risk of realizing that I'm not as good as I thought I was, what are some of those traditional and well-accepted leadership practices that are wrong? And I'm you hoping know, to I, not hear that there are all the things that I do. Well, it's funny because you had said earlier, like when you get promoted to leadership, where's your training, right? Where's your strike? And so where do we get it? We get it via the telephone game, right? Like, hey, I worked for that leader, that leader, and that leader. This is what he or she did great. So I'm going to take those pieces. And these are the things he or she didn't do well. So I'm not going to do those. And so it becomes this telephone game. Well, I've got like 10 things that I know I did wrong. Like, and we don't have all day. Um, but let me start with, I'll start with two. One of them, I, I literally, I just was uh, speaking at a sales kickoff. And then there was a dinner with just the revenue leaders afterwards. And they were talking about this idea that um, hey, it's January. Everybody starts at zero, right? And like that's that that's the tradition. I, I've got to tell you, there's a, a, everybody like buckle up here because um, there was a study that was done out of Duke University. All right, this study. I want you just picture this for a second. They, they brought individuals into a lab. Each person was sat at a desk and given what's called a bionicle, which is like a Lego model. They were asked to build the Lego model for pay. Once they built it, they would be paid for it and then asked to do another one. So group one, they would build it. The proctor would look at it, go, all right, great, here's money. They would take the model, put it on a shelf behind them and then go, all right, here's another one for a little less money. And so group one, they would see how many of these Lego models they would do, these bionicle models before they finally are like, it's no longer worth it. So that was group one. Group two, same exact task, build it, same exact pay. Once done, they the second one, same exact pay as the first group. But the difference was instead of putting it on the shelf behind them after 
they would finish building it. This group two, while they're building the next one, the proctor would disassemble the, the Lego model, put it back in the box, and then it would be the next one given to them, right? And they would keep going back and forth. That's the only difference. Same task, same pay. The difference is disassembled right in front of them. Can you guess that group two did about half as many as group one before they gave up? Now, why do I say that? When we think about our selling efforts and the things that we drive our teams to do, they build, 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 go, 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 build. And then as soon as the year is over, we disassemble it. We put it back in the box and we're like, here, we're going to have you build it again, but for a little less pay because your quota went up. Now, who does that like? So from just an engagement perspective, think about that. Like that's probably we're, we're accidentally disengaging our reps by disassembling it. But number two is you're actually rewarding your bottom performers when you do that. And you're penalizing your top performers, bringing everybody back to zero. You reward the wrong person, penalize the wrong people. We as human beings, we do our best work when we're recognized for our efforts and we have status and it's there for all to see. So I'm not arguing that we should, you know, throw out the start over at zero. I do think there's some things, simple things that we can do. And at this dinner, they all were like, holy crap, you're right. You know, do like lifetime achievement awards, lifetime achievement scoreboards so that those reps mm. that have been here for three, four years, at the kickoff, they brought in their top customer, big ass customer came in. And I asked at the revenue, like when we we're having this conversation, I was like, what percentage of your reps today, since you've been hiring 30, 40 reps a month, what percentage of your reps know what rep brought in that deal? And they were like, none, maybe 5%. I'm like, if I was that rep, I would be like, you know, imagine the pride and engagement I would have if everybody knew that I was the one, right? And so there's things like that you can do with the lifetime achievement. You can do status. You can do partial quota attainment right out of the gate, faster accelerators. I had saw one company that did a logo wall of their top customers where the rep is still here and then the rep who's attributed to it so that when you walk into headquarters, you can see. And the pride that those reps had, they stayed longer. They engaged more. They were will more willing to help. Like the magic happens there. So Number one, the start over at zero, I'd just be careful with that because if you think about that study, you're actually rewarding the wrong person. Wow. So thoughts on that one? I've got, I've got another one that I think is, uh, is pretty exciting, but what do you think? Sure. Let's hear it. <laughs> good, good. So number two is um, through all the behavioral science research that I've done, um, I came to the conclusion that the word commit in a sales organization I believe is a dirty word. I believe that the word commit when used in a sales organization is a Petri dish for lies. Like if you wanna grow lies in your organization, use the word commit and it does much more harm than good. And I always get the people that are like, well, the rep needs to be accountable if I'm accountable. Bullshit, like the, the commit word actually does the opposite. And what I mean by that is when we ask a rep to commit to a deal or commit to a number, when that process happens, first of all, the lies begin, right? Because a rep that's got an empty pipeline isn't going to commit nothing. What are they, crazy? Like they're going to commit at least their number and like, oh, but my number's not good enough. I got to do 105%. So there's the lies. Your reps that are the top performers that have full pipelines, 
They're not going to commit 200%. What are they crazy? They don't need that kind of pressure. I'm going to commit like 120% and then overachieve. So it starts there. So now we've got a forecast of commits that are built on a house of lies. And then when we get down to that deal level, when that committed deal goes south, who's the first person you want that rep to feel comfortable going to? You, the leader. Who's the last person they want to go to if they committed that deal? You, the leader, right? They're driving, you're literally driving them to go try to save the deal and to throw more bad time after bad time sunk cost into a deal they might lose and not get the coaching they need because you're going to go, well, you committed that deal. You better go find some dollars somewhere else, right? Like, I, I just, I believe that we've got to erase the word commit and we've got to be honest and transparent collaboratively around deals and create environments where reps aren't afraid to lose to the point where in my last company, uh, we actually celebrated losses. Like on a Friday, it, it was, I know I'm talking a lot here, but I hope everybody's no, hanging in Keep there. going. <laughs> yeah, so we had, like, I, I, when I came into my last company, the senior leadership team and the CEO was very, um, he was one of those old school guys that like, if you put a deal to close lost in Salesforce, everybody on the senior senior leadership team would get a notification, right? And so what was the rep to do? Well, suddenly close dates would move out a year. So instead of moving it to close lost, we'd extend out our close date, right? Like how could that happen? Or the deal would suddenly go to unqualified instead of it being a qualified deal. So we're trying to avoid the losses in the pipeline, which means that our forecast accuracy is in the toilet. And we had this environment where everybody was afraid to lose. I argued with them about it. And I, we had a rep that lost a big deal. He had spent a lot of time on it. He's already getting penalized in his pocket, in his quota attainment. And so I decided to have our office manager go buy a bunch of champagne. And on a Friday, brought him in, we did a champagne toast to him for the loss. I wanted to change the whole culture that celebrating or that losses should be celebrated for the effort, but most importantly, for the lessons that can be learned from it. Because when we use the word commit, what ends up happening is the reason you lose every deal is because the customer sucked. The customer did something. It was something that was out of your control. If we eliminate the word commit and celebrate losses and encourage people to admit when they've done something wrong or they missed something or there was a mistake done and we can celebrate it, drink a little champagne and high five like, dude, yeah, that was stupid. <laughs> we stop making the same mistakes over and over again. And over, after a few months, we lose faster and we stop losing for the same reason over and over again. Mm -hmm. So commit is where that all starts. I just... I, I am emphatic. We got to eliminate that word and start thinking about celebrating the losses. Yeah. And we've got to stop disincentivizing our sales reps to be honest with us. I've worked very yeah. hard and thankfully been successful at creating a relationship with my children uh, where they know that they can tell me anything, anything. I've told, I may not always be happy about it, but I will always listen to you and I will always do my best to help you. Just be honest. And where, uh, where, where they may not be honest with everybody in every other relationship that they have. They know they can tell me anything. And sometimes they do tell me stuff and I'm like, 
are you kidding me? But it does you know, give me an opportunity to take that and say, okay, got it. Why'd you do that? Let's see if we could figure out something that might work better the next time. And that's exactly what you're talking about. We, we encourage sales reps to lie to us as managers, which is stupid. And it's why, it's why most companies have a, an untenable forecast that, that is useless. Oh, exactly. It, well, that's, I'm, I'm, if you don't mind, I do have a third one that has to do with the forecast. But to your point, when I'm reading behavioral uh, science studies and stuff, I'm not reading just like sales studies. I, one of the really interesting categories of behavioral science as it applies to leadership is what you just said, reading parenting studies, like about optimal parenting. Like as a, a great leader, those skills apply to being a great parent and vice versa. So I love that you do that. So here's the third one. All right, ready? And that this one might be my favorite. Um, as a, a, a sales his, history nerd, if you go 100, 120, 140 years back, all the same issues in sales organizations that we face today were there then. All the same objections, all the same, you know, all of it, except for one, which I found really weird. Um, I don't see in these magazines and books a lot of complaining about forecast accuracy. And I thought, well, that's weird. They didn't have CRM. They didn't have Slack. They didn't have conference calls. They didn't like, you know, these reps would be on the road forever and they would be like wiring in their updates. Why, why were they able to get forecasting accurate? And I figured they it out. They didn't have calculators. They didn't even have calculators. Yeah. Exactly. They're using like slide rules and stuff. <laughs> Abacuses. And, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I think I figured it out. Um, and it, you know, the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, 1992, uh, Blake from Mitch and Murray comes in. He's got his chalkboard. He goes in that rant that if you watch it on YouTube, you'll cry yourself to sleep afterwards. Really? Like you didn't want to be in that room. And he goes through ABC, which is always be closing. But then he does something on the board that's AIDA. AIDA, right? He actually got that part right. AIDA is, hey, do we have your attention? Are you interested? Have we generated a desire? And are you ready to take action? AIDA, right? That's the way that he looked at the buying journey. What's funny about that is in 1898, Elias St. Omo Lewis theorized that and said that all buyers go through those four stages, right? They first pay attention, they become interested, they generate a desire, then they take action. That became the structure for every sales process and every forecasting methodology from then through at least 1940. As a matter of fact, in a Elmer Ellsworth Ferris book in 1926, he talks about AIDA and says, we're not even gonna talk about it because we all know that that's the process, right? W what's different about that than today? That was about recognizing buyer behavior. The focus, the endorphin rush that you would get taking a deal through the journey was based on recognizing buyer stages, not what started in 1992 with Seabull and then Salesforce and HubSpot, when you get your CRM out of the box, the stages, they're, you know, prospect, uh, qualify, discover, demo, propose, close, all things sellers are doing, the processes, all seller stages, right? The reps, you can say that you're buyer focused all day long, but when the endorphins that the rep gets for deal prog progression and all the measures and structures are based on what the sellers are doing, huh, 
Who knew that we can't forecast when a buyer will buy when all we're doing is focused on what we're doing? Like that's, I, I think that that one's the big one that I'm like, and so at Power Reviews, we took the stages because I wasn't going to blow up Salesforce. It was too late. Like that would have been hell on earth. We layered over the top, not AIDA, you don't see that anywhere, but kind of a modernized version, which is the three stages buyers go through today, which is why change, right? Like why should I be doing something different tomorrow than I'm doing today? Why us versus another solution? And then why now? We layered that over the top created the endorphin rushes and all the measures and conversations around deal progression around that. And our forecast immediately became more accurate. Wow. Yeah. It took me a long time to realize that the buyer could care less, could not care less about my sales cycle. They only care about their buying cycle. Exactly. And, and, and by the way, uh, for anybody who's listening in or, or viewing who has not seen the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, even if you only watch the first 10 minutes, it's worth it. it, it it's brilliant. Uh, the whole movie is depressing as heck. You might leave sales after exactly. seeing it, but that first 10 minutes with Alec Baldwin as the sales manager from hell is, is just brilliant acting. And he didn't shoot anybody in it, so it was great. Uh, <laughs> right. um, so in the, in the new book, uh, The Transparent Sales Leader, you've developed a structure or a process mm -hmm. that's optimized with science. So what is that structure? Yeah, so for everybody, um, what I had discovered is that every responsibility that you have falls into one of five categories. And if all you do is go up to a whiteboard and write down those five categories and internalize them, it can become your structure for the way that you plan and strategize. Like literally after I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rattle off the five here in a second. When this call is over, if you sat down, you could create a 20, in the next 20 minutes, you could create a 30, 60, 90 day plan for you. No longer will you have to go to Google or ask your friends, hey, does anybody have a good 30, 60, 90 day plan template? Like you'll actually have it, all right? So all everything that you, every responsibility that you have as a revenue leader falls into one of five categories. The first one, initially and ongoing and always is to the focus. So the first word is focus. I call it the five Fs of building revenue capacity because I'm a dumbass. I needed to make it alliterative, but focus meaning you've got a responsibility to make sure that when your team wakes up in the morning, they are spending their most valuable resource, which is their time that they can convert to revenue on the right companies in the right places with the right prerequisites, right? So the firmographics, meaning the verticals, company sizes, geographies, the demographics, meaning the right individuals you're trying to focus on within those titles, roles, whether they're mobilizers or not. Prerequisites could be you know, certain things that you need to see in an organization that makes them a good prospect. But your initial one is focus. Establish that, who are you going to say yes to, who are you going to say no to, and make sure that your team is focused on those right ones. Once you've established that focus, and again, it's ongoing because it's always there's, and I used to call it no science projects. The second F is you've got a responsibility to optimize the field organization, the team that takes the field. So that's the right people in the right places with the right experience and the right tools and the right resources. That's your responsibility, right? Make sure you got the right people that are supported in the right way with the right tools and the right processes. The third F is you have an initial and ongoing responsibility to the fundamentals to make sure that your team is getting the right things right consistently. Their messaging, positioning, prospecting, presenting, deal progression processes, negotiating, client success, like 
that's your responsibility, right? So establish focus, build a field to support that focus, make sure that field gets the fundamentals right. Your fourth F, surprise, surprise, is you've got a responsibility to forecast, to predict the future. That means not only the forecast, but the KPIs and the metrics and what should you be measuring and how should you be using that. And then the fifth F, which is arguably the cheesiest, but the most important, I believe, is to fun, right? And fun, by what I mean by that is culture, by creating an environment where your team is intrinsically inspired to show up every day, to stay, to do their best and advocate for you and your organization. And what I mean by that is the old axiom, hey, uh, sales reps are coin operated. You're right if you're doing it wrong. That I believe that there, there's a huge gap and I dedicated a whole uh, section of the book to the science of intrinsic inspiration. That I believe that if, if leaders understood the science around that, that you create environments where variable compensation becomes the reward for doing work they love to do instead of the reason they do it. That's when your customers win, when you win, when your company wins and your, your reps, they have incredible careers as a result. So those are the five. Fo focus, build a field, fundamentals, forecast, fun, internalize those. And when the bullets start flying, you're gonna sound 98% smarter than anybody else any of your peers, even if you fell asleep right now. <laughs> I, I don't think so, because people are saying the fives Fs are terrific. Thank you for sharing them. And we're talking to Todd Capone, the author of The Transparency Sale and his new book, The Transparent Sales Leader. Todd, when I'm thinking about these interviews, I usually plan out a bunch of questions just in case I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But uh, one just popped into my head as you were speaking, and uh, it's one that often uh, uh, I struggle with, You know, having done them so many times for so many years. What about sales meetings? Do you have any advice to sales leaders on how do you run a great sales meeting? Because I'm guessing that like me as a sales rep in you know many years, I sat in meetings going, shoot me. Uh, this is a waste <laughs> of my time. I'm not getting anything out of it. I, I don't want to be here. And I, I never want to waste my rep's time. I, I'd rather they go do their job than listen to me drone on and on. So do you have a, a formula for great sales meetings? Like, I'm talking I, about I do. So, um, I'll tell you, there's a, a couple of things. Um, Number one, the, the five Fs became the uh, the agenda for every one-on-one, -on -one, right? So in a one-on-one -on -one type sales meeting, um, if your one-on-ones are solely focused on the fourth F, the forecast, you're doing it wrong. That what we would do is um, we would create a private one-on-one -on -one, uh, Google Doc. And then at the beginning of the week, we'd put the five Fs on it. I put fun on top because that would always be the first thing that we would talk about. And as things came up between either one of us that are important, but not urgent, that's very important. We'd go into the Google doc and we'd put it under the right category. Important, not urgent, meaning stop with the Slack messages, the text messages, the, you got five minutes. I got to ask you something that probably could wait. And then we would use the five F's as the agenda for the one-on-ones. And we would capture any notes that we talked about in those five things. So again, we would talk about, you know, their engagement level around fun and, you know, maybe their focus and make sure that they're not doing science projects and their time is allocated the right way. And do they feel good about the tools and the resources that they have? Let's talk through fundamentals. You know, how are we doing with the prospecting, the present? Let's look at your KPIs, right? And then once that one-on-one -on -one was over, we would slide those five Fs down put another set of five Fs 
and do it again. And, you know, at the end of three and a half years of power reviews, we had one, I, me and my, my CEO, we used the five S we had three and a half years of notes on there. And that saved my ass a couple of times when he'd be like, why the hell did you do that? And I'm like, um, July 7th, you told me to do that. Remember it's right here. <laughs> right. So that, that's the one-on-ones. Um, I, I was recently looking at, you know, overall sales meetings and, um, I, I created a structure cause I'm a nerd. Um, but I believe that they have four things that I, I, this is cheesy, I know, but I got to make it something I can remember. It's if sales meetings are structured around giving the team cake. All right. So number one, the C is communicate, right? That we as human beings, we do our best work when we can predict, right? When we wake up in the morning, we know what we're getting ourselves into. We sleep better. We engage better. We're more creative communicate at these meetings around helping your team predict what's going on. What do we know? What we, what don't we know? And for the things we don't know, here's when we'll have an update on those, right? So communicates the first one. Number two is associate. So a meaning build a team. We do our best work when we're part of a pack, when we feel connected, when we feel safe and secure, create opportunities in those sales meetings for us to just continue to get to know each other and connect with each other. I used to start every sales meeting with a icebreaker and I didn't care if it took 20 minutes of the meeting, right? Like, Hey, who's the most famous person you ever met? Let's talk about it. Ah, like, you know, those kind of connections. Like one of my favorite uh, in, side note, um, one of my favorite icebreaker questions that created the, the most, like, I think we spent 35 minutes on it was describe your closet. It was so funny because people that were the most anal or like, there might be bodies buried in there. I haven't even like, it's, it was so funny because we got to know each other so well that the K all right, I couldn't find a K word. So, um, I, <laughs> I changed it to a C uh, and it's celebrate. I, I believe that great, uh, sales meetings, there's an element of celebration, recognition, validation that happens in those. We do our best work when we're recognized for our efforts, make sure that that's a core part of it. And then the E is educate right? Which is take some time in every sales meeting to see if we can make each team member 1% better at what they do, right? So if we communicate, we associate, we celebrate and we educate and make that the agenda of our sales meetings, I, I think your team's going to be excited to be there. And then their engagement level when they walk out of there is going to be a lot higher than it probably is today. And who doesn't like cake? Exactly. Yeah. Give them some cake. So, right. Sugar them up. <laughs> so one of the things I loved in, in, in the new book, uh, I mean, I loved everything, but one of them is your suggestions about interview questions. And I did not see a single question on your list. Like, uh, you know, if you were in San Francisco, how could you figure out how many manhole covers that there are? Or, or I think that's a Google uh, question. Or, or if you were an animal, what animal would you be? I don't care. So why don't you ask questions like that when you're interviewing? And what are some of the questions that you do like to use? And by the way, I actually typed them up and printed them out. I thought they were so great. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, like the questions in there are meant to um, illuminate cult. Oh, look at that. That's I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, I just believe that, you know, if we can ask different types of questions that are not the standards, but are not super cheesy, we can really uncover the kind of cultural fit and make sure that there's mutual alignment around the, the engagement level that we're both going to be able to achieve with this relationship. And it's just things like, like the first question, for example, is tell me your story. Now, 
why do we ask a question like that? Well, for me, I want to know if you can tell a story, right? Stories sell. Can you tell me a story that I'm not going to be half asleep in 10 seconds in, right? That tells me your story in an engaging kind of way. If you can't tell a story about yourself, how are you going to tell a story about our solutions and the outcomes that are potential with the solutions that we're trying to bring to you? Like th that's that's one. Like There's a couple of really important ones in there, uh, one of which is just kind of a, a different perspective on job hopping. So we see uh, people a lot of like on LinkedIn, they're just like, ah, job hoppers, eh, they suck, right? Like, oh, this person had three jobs in three years, they must suck, right? Well, I, maybe you might be right. What worries me more from a sales perspective is are, are they really bad at doing discovery, right? Like, isn't part of the interview process is doing good discovery and qualification to make sure there's a match between our solutions and the outcomes that the customer's trying to achieve. In an interview, you're doing the same thing, right? You're trying to do a discovery and qualify whether or not the outcome that you're gonna achieve by bringing the solution in, which is me, into your organization is going to help us both achieve great outcomes together mutually. And so job hopping could be an indication that we're very poor at discovery and qualification. So I always ask, like, just tell me about the last three or four jobs you've been in. Why did you take them? Like, what was it about them that brought you in? And then why did you leave? And I'm just trying to listen for, was there things that we should have been able to see that we didn't? Were there questions that were obviously overlooked during the discovery and qualification point? So like, that's a, that's a really big one for me. But, you know, there's, I think I've got 10 of them in there. Um, are there any that you wanted to ask about that like stand out that you really liked? I just I love them all. Uh, well, the one thing that stands out is you, in regards to your tell me a story, because we want to know, can they tell a story? One of my other, uh, uh, not a 100% not rule, but pretty close is if at the end of an interview, the sales rep who's interviewing for a job doesn't try to close me or at least say, well, what's our next step? I'm not interested. If you can't try to close me on, on giving you a job, right. how are you going to ask our customers for money? It, it's just the most obvious thing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, somebody saying yes to celebration and education, a great business meeting practice, no matter what your industry. We don't know who you are, Facebook user, but thank you for your input. And by the way, that that tell me a story one, by the way, I had somebody, um, I was talking to a CRO and he's just like, I really care about how long the story is. Right. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I don't. If it's a great story, I don't care if it's a half hour long. If you engage me for a half an hour and I want to listen, like, I can, then what happened? Then, then what happened? Right? Like, I don't care if it's 30 minutes or 30 seconds. So, like, take that easy. Like, can they tell a great story? And, and like, that's a really big one. You know, a couple of the other ones that, that jump out is, um, you know, tell me about a, a deal that you brought in that you're most proud of. Right? And why? Like, tell me the story. So that again, illuminates the story. But what I'm looking for there is your source of pride. And does it align to the types of activities and responsibilities that you're gonna have here, right? If, you, if your deal that you're most proud of was a bluebird, well, that's a red flag, right? Um, but if it was a deal that you farmed, right? And you're like, you established these relationships and grew the thing, but your responsibility is gonna be a pure hunting role, maybe there's a mismatch. I want to make sure that I'm illuminating that the things that you go to bed at night going, man, I'm, I really did a good job today, that those are even possible here. Right. So it's just, it's a series of questions like that. Um, I also make sure from a transparency perspective, cause I'm trying to make sure that they're not the type of person that is 
only going to give me the five star reviews and and like erase all the fours, threes, and twos and ones is when you did your homework, what are you most excited about? And then what do you what concerns you? Like what about your skill set? Are you like, hey, I'm gonna need some help here? And I'm trying to hear, did they do their homework? What are they excited about? And is it meaty and meaningful? But most importantly, can we be self-aware enough to recognize that, hey, you know what? I'm gonna need some maybe some extra help here. Like they're like maybe it's the industry. Like I I don't have a, a lot of understanding of that type of buyer yet. I'm gonna have to really dig into it. Like if you can come to me with that level of transparency, the eyes well up and that that's the uh the, the sign of a good potential rep that can be transparent with our potential customers. Yeah. And I love what you said about, you know. You could talk for half an hour, but if you're engaging me in that story, I'll listen forever. I actually interviewed a guy yesterday. Guy could not shut up. And yeah. you know, the, the recruiter who brought him to me, you know, calls me immediately after. He goes, how do you do? I'm like, he's not going to get the job. He goes, why not? I said, he never stops talking. He didn't yeah. ask me a single question. He didn't allow me to ask questions. He monopolized the whole conversation. And at, and at the end, he actually said, I know I talked a lot. And if I was you, I'd probably be falling asleep by now. I said, it was great meeting you. <laughs> yeah, that's trouble. He'd be self-aware enough to know that he was putting you to sleep, right? He's not telling you a great story. You're not engaged. You got to be able to recognize that in sales. Actually, I wanted to shoot myself for half the time. <laughs> that's right. I, it was like, everything I could do to not just be rude and go, I'm sorry, bro. This is not going to work out. Yeah. And by the way, I should have known that the enthusiasm in this comment was our, my friend Scott Mason, an outstanding motivational and transformational speaker and leader. Um, you mentioned a term before that gets tossed around a lot, and I think people have varying definitions, and the term is sales enablement. You hear it everywhere and all the time. What is sales enablement, and how does a great and transparent leader en enable their sales team? You know, it's it's weird right now. Um, some of the For anybody who's looking for great sales enablement people, three of the best that I've ever worked with have been jettisoned from their organizations in the last two months. I, I like I'm blown away by companies that like there, there's two paths you can take right now when the economy is tight, right? Maybe you did have to do a little bit of a reduction in force. I get it, right? You can't predict the future that happens. But if you do a reduction in force and you're trying to do more with less, and then you get rid of your enablement people and you stop investing in your people like hiring Jeff here or me, um, like, you're actually or both of us. You're, yeah, exactly. Or both of us. That would be awesome. Um, you're, you're actually like consciously going, hey, you know what? Instead of trying to do more with less, let's see if we can do less with less. <laughs> right? Like that's that's stupid. Like there's such an opportunity. You've got to make investments in your team. And that's what enablement is. To me, enablement is not training. Enablement is creating the structures and the processes to make sure that your teams are, again, the most valuable inventory they have the only thing they can turn to revenue is their time are you making sure that that team and those individuals are using that time optimally that's a leader's responsibility and through the resource of enablement to make sure that that is prioritized and that is executed well that combination together is magic so for me um one of my little backstories is I went to a company called Exact Target uh, to run one of the four regions of the company. And being the nerd that I am, uh, the COO was like, Todd, we want you to uh, take the enablement team down to the studs and then rebuild it because we're going to be hiring 30 to 40 reps a month. And we know 
we need a different way of looking at this. And so I did a ton of studying and just created a framework that really worked well with us, which was, you know, first was to basically like amalgamate all of the requirements and priorities from across the organization. We couldn't do everything, but we would create a prioritization list and go, hey, here's the top five. Let's get all agreed to this. And then once you've established that, you've got to have a ability to say no to things because random crap happens along the way. And so we were able to, by doing that process first, we created a way that when those random, hey, Todd, we need training on this. Like, all right, cool. Here was the list. Which one of these needs to go away so we can put that in there? Right? Like that, that's like, that's really important. But number two is it's our responsibility to make sure that all of those priorities get into the brains of the sales team in a way that optimize for the way that human beings learn. Huge miss. Most organizations don't understand how humans learn. And that research is everywhere. I've been digging a lot into that. Enablement means that, that those individuals don't have to be the ones that do the training. Enablement, great enablement people understand the vessel by which that information and that execution needs to get into the team. And that's the responsibility number two. So amalgamate and then, you know, figure out the right way to execute. And then the third one is the measure, right? To create structures, to make sure that we're able to see where the holes are before they form. Because a lot of times when I was a CRO, my enablement person was so valuable because she could see the holes before I could see them right? We'd be hiring people. She would see the warning signs beforehand. And that created, that was about great measures too. So that's, that, that's basically my way that I think about enablement. Love it. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you talk about in the book and you mentioned the term intrinsic inspiration before. And one of the most common thoughts about a sales leader, it's, it's their job to motivate the team or inspire the team. And I'm pretty sure I got this from our pal, uh, who I certainly learned so much from, and I think you did too, Steve Bookbinder, one of the greatest trainers I've ever seen. Um, that the only person who can really motivate someone else is a mafia hitman. If you've killed people, <laughs> you can get people to do stuff. And yeah. my belief is actually that real motivation comes from within. Um, but are motivation and inspiration the same thing? And, and what are your thoughts on intrinsic inspiration? Well, yeah, I mean, to your point, um, yeah, fear is a motivator. It's just not sustainable. <laughs> and it motivates us to survive, not to thrive. Meaning if you're in a boat and there's a shark coming at you, man, you're going to be motivated, right? You go, but that's not sustainable. And that does not bring your creative juices and your best. When I think about intrinsic inspiration for anybody that like doesn't know those terms, extrinsic inspiration is your extrinsic rewards, right? Money is a big one. Um, rewards, you know, trophies, that kind of stuff. Intrinsic inspiration is you wake up in the morning and man, you want to get after it, right? You are really excited about it. Again, being the nerd that I am, I've got a whole section of the book dedicated to this, but I created something called the praise model, which is the, the elements that drive us. There's, there's six things that we do our best. Praise, meaning the P is predictability. We do our best work when we can predict the future. And that's a leader's responsibility to help your sales team predict. The R is recognition, meaning again, we do our best work when we're recognized for our efforts, we're given status, we're validated. The A, really important one, A is the aim of my work. Why am I doing it? The impact, the mission, the purpose. 
what does the if if my job is to help the company achieve a quota and a target that's not a mission i can get that anywhere like what does my work mean to our company our customers and their customers that's aim i is independence we do our best work when we're given the tools and resources to do our best work with the least amount of supervision opposite of that is micromanagement right stop it independence the s we talked about this earlier security we do our best work when we are part of a pack when we're part of a team when we feel like somebody's got our back right if you're out in the serengeti by yourself and then you join a pack suddenly all you have to do is be a little faster than the slowest person and what happens you calm down you can be creative you sleep better and when you sleep better you perform better and then the e is equitability we do our best work when the juice is worth the squeeze when we feel like the effort that we're putting in and our valuable time the rewards that we get back are equal to what i should be getting and equal to what others that are doing similar work are doing right nothing crushes inspiration and motivation faster than feeling like there's politics or individuals that you know either are buddies or by gender or whatever that there's a different pay scale based on things that are that don't matter that will disengage anybody really quickly so inspiration like what inspires you is it the money or is it the things that we can handle and drive internally and that's what the praise model was designed to do Great. We got praise and cake today. It's a good day. That's uh, right. Todd, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I don't know if you have an appointment. Uh, if we go a couple of minutes over, oh, I we can't. We can't. I'm actually, I don't know if you can tell, I'm not in my home office. I'm up in Wisconsin in a cabin right now. So I'm just, uh, there's a lot of snow right out the window here. So I'm, well, I uh, see a hot tub behind you. So I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there, there, there is one thing I'd like to chat about briefly, and it, it, it's from your first book. And I know we're talking about the new book, uh, The Transparent Sales Leader, but I love that book so much. And one of the things I really, really appreciated and learned from is transparent negotiating. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give an example or two before we close out today? Yeah, it's the most popular thing that I teach. So um, I teach something called transparent leadership and it's based on this. All right. So everybody buckle up again. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I always thought it was weird growing up in sales that I needed a different personality to negotiate than I did to sell. Like, I don't know if you can feel that, but like we build a relationship, we build trust right up to the goal line. The customer says yes. And then we go, all right, cool. I'm going to start lying to you now. I'm not going to tell you what a good deal is. And as a matter of fact, I learned to negotiate from former FBI hostage negotiators. So I'm going to use techniques that would have been used in releasing hostages from a bank heist. What? Like, no, you know, in today's economy, like so much of what we do, like Jeff, you know, your business is driven like referrals and upsell and cross sell the deal in this proliferation of information economy that we're in the subscription economy that we're in the deal is merely an early milestone on the path to success and profitability it is no longer the peak like it might have been 20 years ago using techniques that like we don't get to tase the buyer and drag them to jail afterwards we want them to stay to buy more to advocate to go to another company and hire us again I just, I think it's crazy. So I had stumbled upon this concept of transparent negotiating a number of years ago. And it's basically playing our cards face up very early in the conversation around the way that our pricing is structured, making sure that those levers are included in the way that we propose. And then when the negotiation happens, 
you actually give the customer the cards to negotiate their own deal. And, and essentially, as I know, we're right at the top of the hour here, your company and every for-profit company cares about four things. Volume, so how much they buy. Timing of cash, how fast they pay. You like money, the faster they pay, the better. Length of commitment, the longer they commit, probably the better. And then number four is the timing of the deal or your ability to predict, forecast, and resource. What ends up happening is when a customer asks for a discount or asks for anything, or they want to pay slower, or they don't want to commit, or they want to hold the price to next month, you can always go back to those levers and go, hey, listen, as you remember, our pricing is based on how much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit, and when you sign. If you want to change one of those, you can, but let's look at these levers and figure out maybe how we make that exchange. You want to pay a little slower? All right. Well, there's an opportunity to commit to a little bit more, or maybe... Uh, commit longer, or let's mutually align around the timing because there's value to us in that. And you'll find that your deals get more valuable. You're building trust at the goal line instead of traditional methods which erode it. And then the amazing thing is if you use that fourth lever, timing of the deal right, your deals become a lot more predictable because your customers understand the why and they have skin in the game. It's magic when it's done right. And it's it's uh, like I said, I, I've already taught it, what, four or five times this year, and we're only at the end of January. So, yeah, so some of the techniques that people use, I, I mean, they've been done time and time again, and they just don't work. Uh, for one of my clients, we were bringing in, uh, I don't want to say the name of the company, but, you know, Seamless AI, right? Oh, yeah, uh, of course. Yep. A, a competitor of theirs that's way more expensive. And we were looking at this product and uh, I was dealing directly with the sales rep. And uh, my, my CEO was taking a while to make the decision. At the end of every month, it was, Jeff, if you make the decisions uh, today, I can get you this deal. I'm like, please don't do that. I actually <laughs> said to him at one point, please don't do that to me. I know that if I call you on the third of the month, you're still going to give me the same deal, if not a better one. And every month he'd call me, stop doing that. Please, guys, stop being stupid. Yeah. Read Todd's book, The Transparent Sales Leader. Read The Transparency Sale. Be transparent. Todd, any last words that you'd like to say before we end? Well, on that last point... Just remember that you actually, ironically, when you create a fake expiring discount, you're incentivizing the buyer to wait because they know that that matters and now they can ask for more free stuff that you just gave away. But my parting word is uh, there's a, a phrase from my favorite sales philosopher of all time. Uh, his name is Arthur Sheldon. Uh, I believe he's the goat of sales philosophers. And in his 1911 book, The Art of Selling, he's got a quote that says that true salesmanship is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go. It's, I, I believe that the future of selling and the lens by which all of us are responsible for bringing to potential buyers is our job is not to convince. Our job is to help buyers predict. Be a service to them, do the homework for them, help them, sherpa them through the buying journey. That, that's where a lot of our profession goes wrong. And just my parting thoughts, again, grasp that thought firmly that sales is the science of service, never let go. And I think our, our profession and then you as individuals have a strong future. Todd, you're a keynote speaker. You are a trainer. You do lots of things. I'm sharing my screen right now, but that's only for the people who can see us live, for the people who will hear this on a podcast. How do people reach you if they're interested? Yeah, toddcapone.com is a great place to start. There's links to everything. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my phone number is on here, 847-999-0420. If anybody wants to reach out, I said that really fast. But 
Uh, <laughs> lots of ways to get a hold of me at Google search and I'm annoyingly everywhere. But uh, yeah, we'd love to be a resource for you and your team if I can be. Buy, buy his books. They are great. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for generously sharing your brilliance. I love speaking with you, my friend. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you, uh, let me know. And I'll end as I always do, my friends. Sales is a game of making things happen. So get out there and make sales happen. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you.